0: We're going to be continuing now. Um, so, uh, in this session, we're going to be continuing with the second source of Islamic law, and that is Sunnah, the Sunnah of the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And if you're following along in the book, it's on page 59. Now... Um, Uh, as you can see, this is a pretty big book, and I know that the topic is very dense, and there's a lot of information. And the best way to approach this One Day Intensive, and the information you're learning here, is you are getting exposed to a lot of different things, a lot of different concepts, getting a good bird's eye view of things, but you're going to need to make personal effort on your own to go back and read these sections, uh, you know, take notes, detailed notes on them. Uh, That's why it's good that you have your workbook so you could write things alongside this PowerPoint and also you have pages to take notes in each section in the book that you have right here. Now, in terms of the content of the book, as far as I'm concerned, you know, we have until um, uh, we have until about a page until about section um, the uh, the section unit 6 that it has critical material that I'm hoping that we get through, uh, and that's about halfway through the book, 130 pages in or 150 pages in, um, and that's that's the most critical information for me here. Now we're not going to go through every single page of the book, as you could see, um, you know, because we want to be able to digest, follow along easily, so that's why we're con- we're continuing in this way. Now, like I said, we're going to start this section now. We have until Nagrib about a half an hour. And in this section here, um, we're going to start off with questions. Some of you said you have questions. So we'll take the questions first, and then we'll go on continuing the sunnah uh, as a second source of law. So who would like to ask a question? Um, who's the one, who, who has a question that they wanted to ask? Yes. Okay. Bismillah. Um, in to it being mentioned the Yes. Is there a resource or guide on the order of when the Quran was revealed with context and an actual, actionable plan? An actionable plan for what? So, like, a, 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 for yeah. memorizing? Not necessarily a source or a guide of the order of the Quran being with Yeah. So look, JazakAllah um, khair for the question. We said that the companions would take 10 verses at a time, uh, memorize, learn their guidance, memorize them, and then implement them in their lives. Uh, now the question was, is there this guide that tells us from A to Z how the Quran was actually revealed? The answer to this is, we know the order of revelation based on narrations. Based on, there's books that are about um, uh, uh, compiling Asbab al-Nuzul, the causes of revelation, and also speaking to the timeline of Revelation, right? So, but these narrations are not comprehensive. They're not going to tell you when each verse was revealed specifically. Um, You know, when each revelation, when each uh, interval of Revelation came down. It's going to tell you this surah was revealed before that one, or that surah was revealed after that one, or this surah was revealed as whole, or this surah was revealed in Mecca. This surah was revealed in Medina. Uh, this surah has the last verse that was revealed to the Prophet. So it's going to contain certain revelations like that, uh, or certain narrations like that. But it will not be clear cut to tell you if from A to Z how each set of verses was revealed. We, I, we don't have it to that point. Yeah. Allahu Uh Yes, go ahead. All right. How should a Muslim approach when there's conflict between Sharia law and uh, uh, man-made law? Explain. What do you mean? For example, like in what? Yeah, but still, like like what? So there's going to be an overlap, because like we said in our explanation, there are certain things for individuals to do, and then there's certain things for states to decide. There are certain things that are not even in my hand to even think about, right? As a Muslim, you know, man-made law is never going to tell me, uh, don't pray, Right? Uh, at least the way, unless we lived in like uh, uh, a very oppressive state, that's a different reality. We don't live in that type of state now where people are going to like execute you if you pray, right? No, you're going to be able to pray. Go, you want to fast Ramadan? Go fast Ramadan. You want to have a mosque, a masjid? Go have a masjid. So where is this contradiction going to take place in terms of what I'm supposed to do as a Muslim? The way I'm supposed to operate is the way a Muslim is supposed to operate, Right. So, if you have a specific example, you can ask it. But, in general, the individual practices of a Muslim in Sharia are all afforded to me. Uh, that, you know, as an individual, I'm not a states person, I'm not a head of state, I'm not a governor, I'm not a minister, I'm not a kada. I'm not a, a, a person in the judicial system. As a Muslim, I can fully and freely function as a Muslim in this society. As for example, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, th- this is the way that, like, like so, 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 so. For example, there are certain work-related realities that make, and then we're going to talk about this in the last session, like the last session. Like, so there are certain things that are complicated. Like, say, for example, I want to become a doctor. Technically, um, as a Muslim, I cannot uh, treat someone or be treated by someone of the opposite gender unless there is a need. When would there be a need? If there is no doctor of the same gender, or the one that is of the same gender is not of the same level of expertise and proficiency. Now, of course, in our society, where there is great... um, um, interaction between genders this is impossible um as a doctor can you say i will only see female patients no uh you'd get lawsuits uh, probably if you do that and uh as a patient you may be able to demand that you get a female doctor that may be afforded to you sometimes and sometimes in certain situations so it's more it's more uh cap- it's more um likely to conform to it as a patient. But even then, sometimes, according to Sharia, you would be able to break it out of this rule if, for example, the one that is available to you as the opposite gender is more proficient or is the one that's more accessible based on whatever your financial realities or whatever else it is. But anyway... As a patient, it's much more easy to do. That's just one example. There's many other examples where you talk about the workplace and the work environment where you would need to come to terms with things that don't necessarily sit well, Islamically speaking. And that's what we're going to talk about more in the last session. When I come to implementing Islamic uh, fiqh in my life, how can I reconcile between these realities? Inshallah, the last session we'll talk about that more. Uh, You have a question. Yes. During what? Yes. So look uh, when they when they came up with five hundred verses or ten um, percent, uh, they surveyed what was revealed. Allah revealed it, Allah revealed it, right So Allah revealed all of these verses. they went back to all of the verses, they found that they counted them. you know when you count these verses at the six thousand plus right six thousand plus, they found that the ones that are directly relating to matters of law reach this number, right. So they didn't make these verses, Allah made them, right? So so they just went and surveyed and analyzed the Qur'an. This happened, and, and then there's, you know, in tafsir, this became a genre of tafsir. That where some some scholars, they only wrote tafsir ayatul al-ahkam. Giving explanation to the verses pertaining to law, right? So that's, uh, so again, so it's it's all by Allah. But they just went and analyzed the verses, And they counted which ones relate to inheritance, which ones relate to um, uh, prayer, which ones relate to this and that. And and that's the number that they came up with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Scholars of tafsir, Scholars of tafsir. Later on. Mm -hmm. Who's the names who wrote in Ayat al-Ahkam? So the scholars. So what you're going to learn is all of these sciences developed slowly, um, based on need. So, like for example, during the time of the Prophet, was there, was there a single fiqh book? No. There was no. There was no need for a fiqh book during the time of the Prophet. Was there any tafsir book? No. All of this stuff happened across the decades and the centuries afterwards. So, for example, the greatest monumental work in tafsir, cover to cover, uh, was Tabari, Imam Tabari, al-Jam' al-Ihkam al-Qur'an. Right Or al al-Bayan, sorry- al Quran. This is tafsir Tabari. this was a few centuries later, sister. So but before that, people would do tafsir on certain subjects, right? And this is you know, there's no point in even mentioning the names. This is like a whole like historical database and chronology of many, many scholars who wrote in different fields, right? Laed. Yes, go ahead. yes we're going to learn in this section right now right so let's take one more question and then we'll go into the sunnah yes in this order sorry Okay. So the order that we have of the Qur'an from Fatiha to Nas is actually by revelations, by the Prophet it, During his lifetime this was spelled out. Um, the names of the chapters was also by the Prophet Wasallam. The addition of vowels was not needed. So it's like a crutch. Like So for example, um, uh, you know in an English dictionary when you would have... Um, uh, the, what do they say? Those uh, breaking down the syllables of a word in a dictionary, like how do you pronounce this word? That's wh- that's what harakas do. They help you pronounce the word properly. But you know, if I am someone um, who uh, knows English proficiently, am I going to need those um, that breakdown? Of course not. I'm not going to I'm not going to look at the word garage, for example, and accidentally say garag, All right. Or Jaraj? No, I know how to say it. I was born... I am... I am. Um, this language comes to me uh, by birth, from my birth, from my upbringing, right? So I know it Salikatan, by nature. I don't need to go back to basic grammatic rulings to pronounce every little thing, right? I would need that for Arabic, for example, if I'm non-Arab, uh, you know, but someone who was born Arab would not even need those vowels. So... So this claim, that I don't think that's the claim, that's not the issue. Like with the diacritic marks, the fatha kesra, Kasra, these things, they were not needed by the Arabs. The Arabs were an unlettered people. They didn't depend on writing, right? They had it memorized within them. And so, so, that's, so that's, that's also partially here. And, and again, like now, you, you're talking about a generation that had a lot of infighting between them at certain points. They were literally at war with each other during the time of Sayyidina Uthman and Ali. You're going to tell me, O oh Orientalists, that this generation began and ended without there being conflict and feuding about the verses of the Qur'an? Okay, they they somehow managed to fight about everything else to the point where they were raising the swords to each other. Yet they could not dispute about a single verse of the Qur'an. It was memorized in their hearts and preserved letter by letter. Uh, now, uh, you, so the, the default is something is flawed, is, is, uh, something is sound. I need to prove it's flawed. So this is the way that I was also... So there's, there's, this, there's this very fundamental principle in law that we follow, right? Innocent until proven guilty, right? al man ankar, right? The proof is needed by those who claim. You claim the Qur'an is tempered with prove it to me. I just gave you generational evidence by, by um, hundreds and thousands upon individuals who have it memorized and have it written, and you don't find any contradiction between what they're narrating, and you're going to come and claim to me that you conveniently don't agree that this has been preserved. You bring me the evidence, right? That's what I would say to them. Bring me the evidence of its temperament. Every evidence that you, that they will possibly bring could easily be dismantled by someone who's an expert in this regard. Do right? you, you have any? Is it clarified for you? Okay. Jazakallah khair. All right. Let's, let's go on. The sunnah. Um, the sunnah. What is the sunnah? What does sunnah mean? It means a path or way, whether it's good or bad. The Quran says it. It, it uses it in this linguistic way. Um, as you see here, in Surah Ali Imran, verse 137, it says similar situations have passed on before you. So proceed throughout the earth and observe how was the end of those who denied. What does it say uh, in, in, the, in the Arabic verse? It says, "Sunnata kabla Right? All right. This is our established ways for those who we be sent before you among the messengers, and you will not find. So sunnah means way, path, right? It means, and that's why the Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith, whoever starts in Islam a good practice. Whoever starts a good practice, meaning a good sunnah, a good path, a good way, a good good a good, good, a good action, and is emulated by others in doing so, he will get the reward of it, and the reward of all those who act upon it without their rewards diminishing in the slightest. Right? So this is another usage of the term sunnah, linguistically. Another usage of it this is the last one. In every deed, there is a peak followed by lassitude. Inna li shirra, Right? So the Prophet ﷺ says, for every act, there is a peak, and then there is a period of lassitude and weakness. So it says, <inaudible> whoever is period of lassitude and weakness is according to my sunnah, he is successful. He will be indeed successful. And whoever it was to another way, um, he will be indeed a failure. So that is, so again, this is the term sunnah in language. What does it technically mean? Here, this technical definition is broken down um, uh, here. All statements, actions, approvals, and attributes, whether physical or moral, Ascribe to the Prophet ﷺ, whether before or after the beginning of his prophethood. It's a very technical definition. It includes for us different categories that are going to come up right now, inshaAllah. Sunnah, again, has been used in the Qur'an. Sunnah is used to refer to wisdom, right? Sunnah is used to refer to wisdom, right? So, hikmah um, uh, in Arabic, right? Uh, um, uh, right send among them a messenger who will teach them your recite to them your verses teach them your book and teach them the wisdom what is the wisdom that's the sunnah that's a quranic reference for sunnah in the quran it's referred to as the wisdom Alright, so sunnah means statements actions approvals attributes we have four categories right What's the explanation of these? Many of the things that we perceive as... So we have the term sunnah. And then we have the term hadith. Right? (coughs) Sunnah is this general term. It's used in different ways. Right? So here. Follow along with me, guys. Sunnah linguistically means... What? Path. All right. Sunnah could also be used to refer to the second source of Islamic law. That's one. The second source of Islamic law. Quran and Sunnah, right? Sunnah, this is number two. Sunnah could also be used to refer to hadith, synonymous with hadith. When it's synonymous with hadith, it includes these things. Sunnah synonymous with hadith. Synonym with hadith, refers to the Prophet's actions, his statements, his approvals, right, his attributes. All of this falls under sunnah. When it's a synonym with hadith. Good? A third usage of the term sunnah is when it is the opposite of bid'ah, innovation. That's in matters of creed. Matters okay. so it's an innovation, meaning an invented matter, something that's foreign to the corpus of teachings in Islam. It's foreign to Islamic law, and then uh, sunnah is meaning that it is a foundation; it has a foundation and a basis in Islamic law, right? Sunnah and bid'ah, sunnah and bid'ah. Do we understand the usages? The three usages I just mentioned to you for the term sunnah. You understand it? Everyone's following along with me, right? Good. What's an example of a statement? A man said to the Messenger advise me. The Prophet said, don't get angry. And the man repeated the question again and thrice. And the Prophet said to him again and a third time, do not get angry. Right? Actions. Like what? When the Prophet directed us to observe his manner of prayers, right? The Prophet showed us how to make wudu, his actions, right? The Prophet Wasallam showed us how to do Hajj when he said, "Khudu' anni manasikakum," right? So this statement is directing us to observe his actions, right? So that's an action, example of an action. What's an example of an approval? This is during the Battle of al-Hazab, when the Prophet Wasallam told the companions, "None of you should pray Asr until you reach the neighborhood of Beni Qurayza." These are a group of uh, these are a group of people who committed an act of treachery and betrayal. Uh, during the Battle of Al-Hizab. So some of the companions actually waited till they got to the area of Bani Quraidah to pray Asr, and they missed Asr time. And others realized the Prophet وسلم, wasn't being literal. So they decided to pray on the way. And the Prophet ﷺ approved of the actions of both. Some of those who stuck to the letter of what he said, and others who understood the meaning of behind what he was saying, which is what? Hasten and hurry up. This is critical to understand, because we're going to find that this actually led to the foundations of two main schools of thought that we're going to learn about in today's session. What are they? Ahl al-Hadith, Ahl rai the, the scholars, the people of Hadith and the people of, uh, of opinion. Now, of course... When you make it seem like that opinion hadith, which one do you want to be part of? Which one you want to be part of hadith? But this is not meant to be understood like that. It's not like oh, these are the good people; these are the bad people, right? The people of ra'i were not people against hadith, right? But they were a people who pursued reason behind textual evidences, right? People of hadith were people who stuck to the wording of textual evidence. It's critical to understand this because the the foundations. Uh, for the, the, the school of Ahl al Ra'i, were found in two of the companions of the Prophet Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab. Uh, he is a fiqih, someone of deep understanding. And his fiqh, the fiqh of Umar, led to what founded Madrasat Ahl al Ra'i. Followed by Ibn Mas'ud, عبد, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, who is also according to this school. Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas, on the other hand, was very committed. To the letter of the law. He was someone who was deeply committed to following the form and the wording and the direct actions of the Prophet ﷺ. Would someone dare say that Ibn Abbas is better than Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab? Would anyone dare say this? No one would dare say this because we know that Sayyidina Umar was the Prophet ﷺ's right hand after Abu Bakr. And Sayyidina Umar was far superior in Iman and in position and authority. Then Sayyidina Ibn Abbas, right? Even though Ibn Abbas is of immense status and greatness, right? So, this is important to understand this. Approvals, physical description. A person asked Jabir, was the Prophet ﷺ's face as bright as the sword? Sayyidina Jabir said, no. It was round and like the sun and the moon, right? Beautiful, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi They would say that his face would light up like the moon on the night of a full moon. Beautiful to learn about the Prophet. InshaAllah, we're going to actually be doing this in the next intensive more. Where that's going to be with next weekend with uh, Sheikh Yasser and Prophetic Living. Uh, it's next Sunday uh, in ICPC Patterson. I'll also be with him. inshaAllah Taala, we're going to be reflecting more deeply on the khasa'is and the special and new characteristics of the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? Uh, you 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 have a question? Can you just hold it for a second? Um, yeah. So the physical description of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is uh, mentioned here The character description is Whenever the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was given a choice between two matters He would always choose the easier as long as it was not sinful to do so That's a critical detail, right? <laughs> um, as long as it's not sinful to do so He wouldn't always choose what's easier uh, He would only do that is when, it's, when it wasn't sinful to do so He never took revenge upon anybody for his own sake, but when Allah's boundaries were breached, he would take revenge for Allah's sake. So this is all showing us about the sunnah. Now the relationship of the sunnah and the Qur'an, it's threefold. Threefold, look at this. The sunnah sometimes affirms the teachings of the Qur'an, that's one. And sometimes it clarifies the Qur'an, that's two. And sometimes it set up independent legislation, that's three. Sometimes it's set up independent legislation, that's three, okay? And here, the following slides, they're all clarifying to you through example, right? All right. like we already gave the example of Salah, where's Salah in the Qur'an? The the Zakah, where's Zakah in the Qur'an? Hajj, where's Hajj in the Qur'an? Very, very general, universal terminology. You will not find details of these matters in the Qur'an, right? Clarifying what's misunderstood specifying the general terms of things, right? Explaining the meaning behind the All of this is, these are examples. You could read them on your own um, for things that, uh, you know, describe the relationship between the Quran and the Sunnah. So that's pretty much what we have about the Sunnah. And again, just going back to the book, you'll find on page 59 it starts. It goes over the usages of the term Sunnah on page 59. 60, and, 60 uh, and 61. And then on page 62, it tells us about the Prophet ﷺ's ijtihad. How the Prophet ﷺ sometimes would use his own discretion in issuing legal rulings, right? And he gives some examples of this. The Prophet ﷺ used his own discretion in Badr uh, with the prisoners of Badr. And he also uses uh, he also his own discretion um uh in, uh in in other situations that he mentions here as well. Uh so that's what he goes over on page 62, 63 and 64 is him speaking about the um of the sunnah, the the the, the, it, the sunnah being as a, um the evidence that the sunnah is an authority. How did the companions preserve the sunnah? We're going to talk about this now. So he said he tells us a little bit about the methodology of the companions. How was the sunnah inscribed and written down? How was the sunnah inscribed and written down? And that pretty much ends up and wraps up the section on page uh, sixty-eight. And then he and then in the next section, unit three, page seventy-one, he starts off by speaking about fiqh during the time of the companions. We're going to stop for Salah in five more minutes, inshallah. I know it's time for Salah, but we're just going to take five more minutes and then we'll actually pray uh, Maghrib, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. Here, I want you, we're going to come back to this slide here. The the stages of the evolution of fiqh, we'll come back to it, uh, slide 59. Slide 60 tells us about the methodology of the companions with the sunnah. Right, May Allah have mercy on one who hears something from me And communicates it to others exactly as you heard it The Prophet Sallallahu told the companions to learn the sunnah Let those present inform those who are absent right? He also said It is enough of a lie for one to speak of all that he hears Meaning be very careful and mindful of what you communicate In terms of guidance from me right? So the methodology of the companions was guided by these hadiths To the extent that Sayyidina Umar and his and his partner, his business partner, they would take turns in being in the presence of the Prophet Again, it's like you, you wouldn't imagine that, right? You would imagine, say, the Umar, he's sitting by the Prophet twenty four hours a day, but that was not the case. He would actually um, uh, he would actually take turns with his business partner. One day he would go be the bar, by the Prophet وسلم, and then he would come back and tell his business partner everything that happened. And the other day his business partner would go and learn from the Prophet Sallallahu and come and inform Sayyidina Umar about what happened. Um, how did the companions receive the sunnah? Well, it was in this manner. They were very keen on asking the Prophet Sallallahu questions to the extent that the Prophet Sallallahu prohibited them from asking. He did not want them to be overwhelmed by the cleaf the and the accountability that would come about from them asking questions, because if they asked a question, they got the answer, and now they have to follow, because the Prophet Sallallahu said it, right? So he did not want them. They would actually wait for people to come outside, from outside of Medina, so that they could take advantage of their presence. Those people would ask the Prophet Sallallahu questions, and they would listen in very carefully. The companions were very keen on learning every single word from the Prophet Sallallahu they could. But here, look at this hadith here. This is a critical hadith to understand. The Prophet said, "Its hadith is in Muslim. Do not write anything from me. From me, whoever has written anything from me other than the Quran, let him erase it and narrate from me. Uh, uh, for there is nothing wrong with that. So, the, why, why is the Prophet telling them don't narrate, don't don't write down things from me? He did not want his hadiths to get confused with the wordings of the Quran. This is a general statement we find." However, that the Prophet ﷺ designated multiple individuals to write his hadiths. He didn't want the general populace of the companions to focus on his hadith so that they don't confuse it with the Quran. But at the same time, he said, Narrate from me, for there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing that comes out of my mouth but the truth. Uh, so in the end of his life, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi changed his stance on this and he wanted them to write. Uh, and he said, bring for me paper. I will write for you a statement after which you will not go astray. And then the Prophet Sallallahu fell severely ill. And he passed away before he actually did that. The companions had a great level of reverence and commitment to the message of the Prophet Sallallahu To the extent that they even revered the Prophet وسلم, after he passed away. Again, for those coming in, inshallah, we're going to stop in about two, three minutes. And we're going to pray Salatul Maghrib, inshallah. So... There was, a man, there was two people that came from Ta'if, and they were speaking loudly in the presence of the grave of the Prophet ﷺ. So Sayyidina Umar got so angry, he called them over and he said, where are you from? They said, we're from Ta'if. He said, had you been from the people of Medina, I would have struck you. I would have beaten you for raising your, your voices in the presence of the Prophet ﷺ. Because they were speaking loudly next to his grave And you need to be very this is my, This is a reminder for everyone going for Hajj or Umrah Be very respectful in the mosque of the Prophet وسلم, And in the presence of the grave Respecting the Prophet وسلم, After he passed away is just like respecting him When he was alive so, so this is how This was the companion sentiment Towards the Prophet They loved him, they revered him They learned from him, everything Now here are critical Takeaways From this, now when it comes to the methodology of the companions in narrating the sunnah, it follows four principles. One is minimal narration. Because what? They didn't just narrate anything. They wanted to be very sure about what they were narrating from the Prophet. Precaution in accepting narrations. Three, critical assessment of transmissions. And four, travel. These are the four critical things that we find in the example of the companions. And we're going to actually speak about this more. So we're going we're gonna to actually mention this tail end of uh, the, the lives of the companions and how they taught us and they taught later generations to communicate the sunnah and to communicate knowledge of Islam in general. We're going to speak a little bit about this. And then we're going to be going to the next generation after that, the successors. But inshallah we're going to stop here um, for uh, Salat al-Maghrib, a sister who had the question. Was it a quick one or should we leave it till after Salah? After Salah. So after Salah, if you had questions on what we discovered so far, we will continue with that bi'ithnallahi ta'ala. Jazakumullah And We'll stop here for uh, this session. Salaamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.